Thank you, though, for that kind introduction earlier uh, in the program. Thank you, Dr. McCullough, for your bracing talk and your remarks. Uh, thank you to Joe and Tracy for your hospitality. This is definitely the nicest indoor tennis uh, spot I've ever seen. And seeing the greats up here on the wall is inspiring. So th thank you again for your generosity and your hospitality. And thanks to the Mises Institute. Um, I've been struck by several people who seemed to have antibodies against the craziness that happened during COVID. There, there, are, there aren't very many of them, but here and there, even outside people, I think, connected to this institute, um, I've encountered people and I've asked them, you know, what was it about your, your thinking or maybe your background or your work or your intellectual formation that helped you to sort of see what was going on? And in a number of cases, uh, including a law professor uh, at George Mason University who filed a, a vaccine mandate lawsuit similar to the one I filed at the University of California, said it was, it was the influence of uh, von Mises. So I must confess I'm not as familiar with his work as most of the people in this room, but I, I do want to go home and do a deeper dive to find out um, why so many... Uh, outliers who turned out to be really sensible people, um, uh, somehow their, their way of seeing things and their way of understanding the world was influenced by, by this man. So Peter's talk really teed mine up perfectly because it, it naturally raises the question of why all of these one-size-fits-all, very ineffective and indeed harmful policies were not only rolled out, but maintained, even as the evidence of harms continued to mount. And I think one way to try to answer that question is looking at scientific data and critiquing those policies using scientific data. And that's very, very important. That's not primarily what I'm going to do today. I want to sort of Google Earth up and look at the larger economic and political forces that were at work driving the pandemic response in order to understand what do these things tell us about our current political economy? What do these things tell us about uh, the view of the human person, the view of the individual that has now sort of taken hold of our cultural and social imaginations that allowed us to move down this very destructive path? Um, in my, in my own book, which I sort of borrow the title of this talk from, The New Abnormal, uh, the subtitle is The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And just as Peter talked about the medical industrial complex, I'm going to talk about sort of a bigger picture um, uh, network of institutions and ideas that has taken over not only public health and medicine, but I argue in the book... Uh, what we saw roll out in March of 2020 was not just a new paradigm of trying to fight a novel virus, not just a new sort of public health approach to dealing with a pandemic. What we saw roll out in March of 2020 was a new paradigm of governance, a new paradigm of controlling populations on a widespread scale. And... I'm going to talk about the three elements of the biomedical security state in a few minutes, 
But before I talk about that, I want to talk a little bit about the history of what manifested fully in March of 2020 and the subsequent three years actually has what I consider to be about a 25-year history, uh, at least. And I trace the origin of this biomedical security state back to 1997 to a conference held in Washington, D.C., actually sponsored by Anthony Fauci. And it was a public health conference about dealing with pandemics. But during this conference, there was a subtle shift of emphasis that uh, is so subtle that you might almost miss it at first glance. But if you follow it out to its logical conclusions, it led us to COVID and the response to COVID. What happened at that conference was a shift from traditional public health that viewed the pathogen, the virus or the bacteria, the infectious agent as the enemy to be combated, right? That's traditional public health. So what do you do if the virus is the enemy? Well, you try to strengthen people's defense against the virus by helping people to be healthier, right? To eat healthy, to exercise, uh, to make sure their vitamin D levels are up to snuff. You strengthen their immune systems with, uh, with all the things that we know are good for you. And then for those who happen to get sick, especially those who are vulnerable, you try to figure out how to treat them. You isolate and quarantine the sick in certain circumstances, right? So that they don't infect other people. That strategy is as old as the, you know, you could trace it back to the plague of Justinian in ancient Rome. Uh, we've known about uh, the idea of quarantining symptomatic individuals for literally for millennia. We've known about natural immunity for uh, millennia too. One of the things that happened during that pandemic in the ancient world was that people who had recovered from the illness were the ones uh, that were caring for the sick because they, weren't, we, they knew that they weren't going to get sick again. They didn't understand the immune mechanisms of natural immunity, but they understood the fact of natural immunity and that having those who had recovered from the illness care for the sick would, uh, would buffer the rest of the population from encountering sick people where they may get sick, um, while not putting those caregivers at additional risk. At this DC conference, though, that traditional approach to public health was shifted in favor of an approach that saw not the virus or the pathogen as the enemy to be fought, but saw the, the problem, characterized the problem as human beings being the vector of disease, right? So the primary problem to be dealt with is not the virus, but human beings who can be the carrier of a virus. Again, subtle shift, but if you follow it out to its logical conclusion, public health is about managing entire human populations rather than just about helping sick people or trying to protect those who are most vulnerable to bad outcomes if they get sick. Well, back in 1997, we didn't have the technological ability to micromanage and control entire populations in the same way that we did in 2020. So it took 25 years for this subtle shift in emphasis in public health to fully play out and lead to what we saw in March of 2020, which was one-size-fits-all policies, lockdowns, school closures, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and in many jurisdictions, vaccine passports. 
All of these policies ignored the two most basic epidemiological facts about COVID, which were known as early as March to April of 2020. The first is the infection fatality rate. As initially reported by the WHO, the infection fatality rate was supposedly three to 4%, which is a terrifying number, right? Even a layperson understands it. You know, a virus that is highly contagious and kills three to 4% of, uh, of the, the population that gets infected is, uh, is going to be terrible. Well, Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford and others who uh, repeated these types of experiments using antibody uh, testing of, uh, of entire populations found that many people who had the virus didn't have symptoms, so they were not presenting for treatment. And for every person that was being counted as being sick from COVID, there were another 50 people that didn't even know that they had the virus. So the actual infection fatality rate was 0.2%. And that declined with subsequent variants. Viruses tend to evolve in the direction of becoming more contagious, but less deadly because viruses want to propagate. And if they kill their host too quickly, they can't propagate. So that's the general trajectory of all viruses as they evolve. And that's exactly what happened with COVID. So at, at, at its highest, the infection fatality rate was 0.2%, which is not good, right? Many people still died of COVID. People who accuse me of minimizing uh, the seriousness of the illness. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I'll talk in a minute about my work as the chief of medical ethics at the University of California, Irvine, where as a director of the ethics committee, I had more conversations than I can count with family members whose loved ones were irretrievably dying in the hospital of this illness uh, due to poor management, uh, due to the lack of early treatment and, and other things. So this, this was a serious illness, but only for a very small subset of the population. And if you take that 0.2% and you ask, okay, uh, what are the characteristics that, uh, of the people that make up that popula population? It was very clear from very early on that there was a significant age gradient. So the vast majority of those people who died, tragically, were over the age of 70. And for those under the age of 50, the infection fatality rate was roughly comparable to influenza. Those two facts were downplayed or ignored, even though they were well-known and replicated over and over worldwide in uh, more studies than, than, than you can count in favor of, again, these one-size-fits-all policies that affected everyone, the healthy, the sick, uh, the young, and the old. The ethical principle of free and informed consent, which was guaranteed by the Nuremberg Code in the wake of the Nazi doctors trial at Nuremberg following World War II. This bulwark of 20th century medical ethics that an adult of sound mind has the right to decline or accept a medical intervention, has the right to decline or accept enrollment in an experimental study, was tossed aside without any public argument or debate when vaccine mandates for competent adults were instituted. It was also uh, a, a little discussed, but uh, publicly available fact that the vaccines under emergency use authorization were still by our own federal government's definition, experimental. Uh, the clinical trials for those 
the full clinical trials for those are still not, not yet complete. My personal story enters in on the whole issue of vaccine mandates. So for 15 years, I was the, as I mentioned, director of medical ethics at the University of California, Irvine. I was a full, full professor in the School of Medicine there. I had spent my entire career since residency at the university, and I had planned to stay on for several more decades and retire at the university. That was my career path and my career plan. I was involved as a medical ethicist with the UC system as a whole at the Office of the President and overseas, not just UC Irvine, where I was at, but UCLA, UCSF, all the five branch campuses that have hospitals and medical centers. I was involved in developing COVID-related policies from the very beginning of the pandemic. So our ventilator triage policy, what to do if we ran out of ventilators. That was a worry early on that fortunately never happened. But um, how to allocate scarce resources. Like there was a time when monoclonal antibodies were scarce. So who, how do we prioritize who to give these to, to do as much good uh, as we can with the limited resources on hand. But then in 2021, when the university announced and floated its draft for a vaccine mandate policy, our group at the office of the president of experts from all five of the branch campuses was not consulted. There was no there was no debate, there was no discussion, and I found this very puzzling because it was very clear to me that of all the policies that we had developed in the first year, year and a half of the pandemic, vaccine mandates were definitely going to be the most ethically controversial um, and the most publicly controversial. And so why was this policy simply coming down from on high without going through the usual process of vetting and discussion and debate? So to try to get a debate going, I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal arguing that university vaccine mandates were unethical. Universities were the first inst uh, institutes in the United States before the federal government, before other private entities did it. Universities were the first institutions to mandate vaccination with uh, the, the COVID shots. That article uh, failed also to get a conversation going at the university and at the office of the president. And then the university, shortly after I published that piece, finalized the mandate and started implementing it. And I saw nurses that had worked for decades at the hospital and had worked every day during the pandemic caring for the sick. I saw nurses getting fired for their, uh, simply exercising their right of informed consent and informed refusal if they declined the vaccine. I had students reaching out to me because I had you know, publicly stated my position in, in, in the newspaper. Students reaching out to me saying, Dr. Cariotti, um, I'm not a religious person, so I, I don't feel in good conscience I can submit a religious exemption, uh, but I have conscience-based reasons, or I have medical reasons to uh, refuse this vaccine, and I'm going to lose my position at the university, or I'm going to lose my scholarship at the university if I don't take the shot. What can I do? And the answer, unfortunately, based on the, the draconian policy, was there, there was nothing uh, that a student like that could do. So... I was projecting ahead at that point. This was uh, uh, September of 2021. I was projecting ahead to January of 2022 when I would teach the required medical ethics course to the students. And in lecture two, talking about the principle of informed consent, and in lecture six, talking about integrity and moral courage and doing the right thing under pressure, even, you know, even if it was going to cost you something. And I, I simply couldn't imagine having those conversations 
with our medical students, if I, who was a person in a position of some authority on these ethical issues, had not uh, tried to do something about this policy at my own institution. So it, 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 to my mind, it wasn't enough to simply have uh, published an argument against this policy. I felt that I had to do something to try to change the policy. So in August of 21, I filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging the university's vaccine mandate policy uh, on 14th Amendment equal protection grounds. And let me tell you, uh, if you want to very quickly go sideways with your employer, one easy way to do that is to sue them in federal court. So as you can imagine, university, it, you know, I knew full well how this would probably play out if I, if I took that fatal step. And uh, the university responded very quickly by placing me on what they called investigatory leave, then a month later on unpaid suspension, and then a month after that, they fired me. So they ran me through the paces of, you know, how to, how to fire a, a faculty member as quickly as, as possible. So that decision cost me my job, but saved me my integrity. And I don't regret having done it. Um, and there's nothing better than waking up every morning with a clear conscience. Another ethical principle that was just simply tossed out during the pandemic was the principle of transparency. So uh, the, the consent part of informed consent is important. You have to be free of undue pressure or coercion. Threats of losing your job or threats of losing your scholarship are certainly coercive. But the informed part of informed consent is also important. You have to be given adequate understandings of the risks, benefits, and alternatives to the proposed intervention or treatment in order to make a reasonable decision for yourself, right? But Americans were not, giving, were not being given accurate information about the vaccine. So that concerned me. So I, I filed another, uh, I organized a group of doctors and scientists to file a Freedom of Information Act request to get the Pfizer data, the clinical trials data that was submitted to the FDA for the approval of their shot. And Peter alluded to this in his talk. The, they wanted to slow walk the data. So under federal law, the day that Pfizer was authorized, the federal government was required to make the clinical trials data available to the public. So there's no question about the law. We were simply asking the FDA to follow the law. So they knew they had to do it, but they tried to slow walk it. So they said, we'll give you 500 pages a month, uh, which a back of the napkin calculation suggested it would have taken, initially we thought it was 55 years, but then we later learned that there was actually more documents than we realized. So it would have taken 75 years for the FDA to release the data that they reviewed in 108 days. Fortunately, we had a good federal judge who said, no, you have nine months to release the data. Then Pfizer intervened, not surprisingly, saying we wanna redact the data before it's released to the public. That wasn't surprising, right? probably in their own interest. What was surprising is that the Department of Justice lawyers representing the FDA agreed with Pfizer and petitioned the court to allow Pfizer to redact the data. Again, our judge said, no, Pfizer's not gonna ha have a hand in redacting the data. And so that data has come out. Peter mentioned the post-marketing surveillance, the 90 days after the release of the vaccine reporting on side effects uh, is a very sobering and in fact, uh, kind of terrifying document uh, that was released uh, with that uh, 
with that data. And that was not the, the information about side effects, the information about the early safety concerns that had been reported was not being given to Americans who basically informed consent consisted of, of two words that were just repeated over and over and over again, safe and effective, safe and effective. Well, how long is it effective? The first shot is effective less than six months. And then efficacy drops below the 50% threshold required by FDA for approval, which is a very low threshold, by the way, for vaccine efficacy. The second shot gives you efficacy for about two to three months. The third shot for about eight weeks. So you get diminishing returns with each of the boosters on efficacy. I'm not going to get into all the safety issues. It would take us too far afield. But I felt just as a, as a principled ethical matter that the public should know and should have the information uh, on this product that they are being forced to take on pain of losing their jobs. From the lepers of the Old Testament to the plague of Justinian in ancient Rome to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, COVID was the first time in human history with lockdowns that we had quarantined healthy populations, right? I talked about the idea of quarantining the, those who are symptomatic. That's a very old idea, traditional public health idea. But the idea of confining people to their homes, not allowing people to, to work and to, to ply their trades. People tried to draw analogies to quarantines in, uh, in, the, uh, in the medieval period and in the ancient period. There is no analogy there. Uh, they, they sometimes closed the gates of walled cities when there, was, uh, when there was a major outbreak of the plague. They certainly would try to isolate people who are symptomatic with illness from the rest of the population, but they never forced people to stay in their homes. They never, they never forced people to stop plying their trade. They didn't do the equivalent of the, the business closures that we saw during the lockdowns. And, and again, governments instituted these measures with virtually no public debate and without due deliberation of the overall consequences. So if you look at this purely from a public health standpoint, you really can't make sense out of it. And I, I spent the first year or so trying to get information out there about the science and about evidence and get a conversation going on that level. And, you know, that was able to reach some people who were trying to be open-minded and trying to get sources of accurate information. Uh, but to really understand why we did what we did and why we doubled down on it, even when it was clear that it was failing and that it was harming people, I think you have to look at the larger economic and, uh, and political uh, issues that drove our pandemic response. So economically, COVID saw the largest upward transfer of wealth in world history. It was a world historical scheme of larceny, vacuuming up wealth from the working class and the middle class, not just to the upper class, but to the, the very tip of the socioeconomic pyramid to the wealthiest of the wealthy tech elites, mostly, uh, or financial firms. How did this happen? Well, Amazon lobbied for lockdowns on the West Coast. Is that because Jeff Bezos knows a lot about public health or managing a novel coronavirus? No. It's because what happened to Amazon's stock and Bezos' personal wealth when his competition was eliminated because small businesses had to close down. People were locked in their homes, so they're forced to do e-commerce even if they wanted to go to the local mom and pop 
and buy their goods and services uh, from local merchants, right? 40% of those small businesses that closed down have still not reopened. It was devastating, devastating to entrepreneurs in the United States and to small business owners. Furthermore, um, the, this one's hard for me to talk about, actually. So my, my first concern about COVID uh, came because uh, my specialty is psychiatry, so I deal with mental health issues. And within a few weeks of the lockdowns, I started seeing the devastating mental health consequences of doing this to people. And I couldn't believe that more psychiatrists and psychologists were not standing up and saying, hey, we're seeing people coming into our cl clinic who are absolutely terrified, paralyzed with, with fear, who are developing depression, who are relapsing with addictions because they can't access treatment or they can't access their 12-step program or because they're lonely and socially isolated. Before the pandemic, uh, Dr. McCullough alluded this, to this as well, we had the opioid crisis, right? We had the largest drug crisis in United States history, 44,000 deaths from drug overdose in 2018, before the pandemic. In 2020, that number was 100,000. 100,000 deaths by drug overdose. Uh, suicide had been rising since 1999 among all age groups, except for those over the age of 75, men and women uh, from age uh, roughly seven, eight to 75 had rising rates of suicide prior to the pandemic, we poured gasoline on that fire. One of the reasons it's hard for me to talk about this is the worst moment of the pandemic for me uh, came in December of 2021, where a young man that I've known literally since he was born, close family friends of ours, best friends with uh, my 17-year-old son growing up, uh, this 17-year-old uh, young man, William, took his own life. Uh, a few days before that, uh, another uh, adolescent in his neighborhood had uh, taken his own life using the very same means that, that William used. There's a social, social contagion element uh, to suicide that can happen. And so addiction, suicide, um, alcohol-related illnesses, so-called deaths of despair were a crisis prior to the pandemic. I wrote about this in a First Things piece called Dying of Despair uh, in 2017. And, uh, and that that problem got exponentially worse with lockdowns and with school closures. And nobody was, nobody was talking about it. The biomedical security state, um, this, uh, this, this construct that I describe in the new abnormal, consists of three distinct elements. Things that used to be more or less separate that have now been welded together into, again, I argue it's not just a new way of dealing with a public health emergency, but it's a new paradigm of governing people and controlling people in ways that 10 years ago would have been, 20 years ago would have been unimaginable. So the first element is a militarized public health apparatus. The second element is the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control. This is the first pandemic of the smartphone era. iPhone came out in 2007. And the third is that these two things, the, the militarized public health apparatus, digital technologies of surveillance and control, 
are backed up by the police powers of the state. So I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes on each of these three elements, giving a, a few, a, a brief sketch and a few illustrations of what I mean by these things. And again, you can, you can find more information in, uh, in the new abnormal. So the militarized public health apparatus involved a pandemic response, as Dr. McCullough described, that was really run by the Department of Defense. You would, you would have thought that a pandemic response would be ultimately quarterbacked by the Department of Health and Human Services at the federal level, because that's, that's the agency that houses the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, our public, public health agencies. Turns out they were not at the top of the org chart. Uh, a researcher at the Brownstone Institute, colleague of mine, basically uh, looking through federal documents, found that at the top of the org chart on our pandemic response was the Depart Department of De Defense. So whether or not COVID was a bioweapon created in a lab that was accidentally and or deliberately released, setting aside that question, which I, I think we're pretty close to an answer on that question. I agree with Peter on that. But even bracketing that for a moment, regardless of your theory of the virus's origins, our government treated it as though it were a biological weapon. That's how we responded to it. Peter mentioned event 201 that happened just a few months prior to the pandemic, a tabletop top exercise that included many of the, the key players that immediately moved into positions of authority guiding our pandemic response a few months later. Event 201 was a tabletop exercise on how to respond to a novel coronavirus. This was before anyone had heard of COVID. This was, I think, in November uh, or October of uh, 2019. You can actually go on YouTube and watch the entire thing. Um, if you don't have time, watch like the 10-minute highlight video is enough to give you a flavor of what went on there. Basically, these, these wargaming of pandemics had been going on for about 20 years. And they all ran according to the same script. Whatever people thought they should do to respond to the virus was never enough. And a bunch of people died because we didn't sort of lock down hard enough. We didn't, we didn't mandate the vaccines. We didn't control the flow of information through censorship aggressively enough. And so there's blood on our hands. That's kind of the takeaway message that you get from all of these tabletop exercises. The origin of lockdowns is an interesting story because uh, Fauci sent his deputy, Clifford Lane, with the WHO delegation to China in February of 2020. So they went there uh, to try to ask some questions about the origins of the virus. They got totally stymied on that uh, by the Chinese Communist Party, not surprisingly, but also to look at how China was responding. And they came back with glowing reports. So Clifford Lane came back and told Fauci, hey, they they're controlling the spread of this virus through locking down, through very rigorous sort of responses of forcing people to stay at home. And Fauci embraced the idea of lockdowns, which again, were never part of traditional public health. And once Deborah Burks uh, started running around telling state governors, you have to lock down or you're gonna have blood on your hands, the, the, the game was sort of up. So the, the key players, advising the White House at that time, basically forced us down this path that most people didn't realize was totally untested, totally unwarranted. And all the, you know, all the previous modeling had rejected the idea 
of doing this? Well, the idea came from propaganda that was promulgated by, by the CCP. They clearly had not controlled the spread of COVID at home or the regional spread of COVID near Wuhan through these kinds of lockdowns. If you think about it, neither the pre-war fascist government in Italy nor the post-war Soviet communist states ever tried to initiate a regime of control of their populations that was as severe as what we experienced in March of 2020 in most states in the United States. We abandoned freedoms that were not relinquished by the citizens of London during the bombings of World War II. They had curfews, but they never locked, locked people down. I think it's instructive to consider the basic human goods that we sacrificed in this failed attempt to preserve bare biological life. Friendships, holidays with family, work, visiting the sick and the dying, worshiping God, in our churches, and burying the dead. By burying the dead, you might think, oh yeah, I was prevented from going to funerals, or I had to go to a Zoom funeral of a loved one during COVID, which was terrible, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about literally burying the dead. Another low point during the pandemic for me is I was having one, when I was still at the university, and uh, I was having one of these conversations with a, a family whose loved one was irretrievably dying of COVID. And they, at that point, they had, they had agreed to transition to comfort care only, which is a hard decision to make. And they then turned to the social worker and asked for help with funeral arrangements. And we often try to help people. And, you know, these were, these were folks who were undocumented and didn't have a lot of resources. And, um, and there are resources in the community to help with burial and so forth for people that can't afford it. The social worker turned to them and informed them that based on CDC recommendations, they would not be getting their loved ones, their father and their, their husband's body back for burial because there was some theoretical risk that a corpse might spread COVID. No evidence in human history that a respiratory virus has ever been spread by a corpse, to my knowledge, Peter could correct me on that, um, but based on this entirely theoretical risk for which there was zero evidence, they were forcing people who wanted a traditional Christian burial. This was a Catholic family. They wanted a burial rather than a cremation. They were forcing them to do a cremation. And we're not, they were not only were not allowed to have a funeral with actual people at it, but they were not allowed to bury their loved one. Second element, digital technologies of surveillance and control. I believe that vaccine mandates were pushed primarily with the end goal of vaccine passports. I think that's what the mandates were ultimately about. Think about if I would have told you in 2018 that, you know, in a year or two, in order to get on a plane, get on a train, go to a restaurant, go to a public event, like a lecture or a, a concert, you're going to have to show a QR code at the door demonstrating that you've done what public health authorities told you to do, including getting a novel injection of a gene therapy that you may or may not have wanted. You would have looked at me like I was crazy, right? Um, okay, maybe the United States is not as libertarian as some of the people in this room would like, but gosh, you know, we're, I, I can't imagine us going there in the near term future. That sounds totalitarian and dystopian. And yet that's exactly what happened. 
And I think it happened because of, you know, after a year of the emotional and physical abuse of lockdowns, people were willing to do just about anything to get back to a semblance of normal life, right? And so we submitted to things that otherwise would have been unthinkable. Just very briefly, I'm going to spend one minute uh, on the use of the police powers of the state. So the Emergencies Act in Canada was invoked for the first time in Canadian history, where Justin Trudeau used the Emergencies Act not only to forcibly remove the truckers' protest in Ottawa, which was entirely peaceful, except for being roughed up by the police, but he also used those emergency powers to freeze the bank accounts of anyone who, of, of the truckers, but also of anyone who had given money to the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa. So imagine giving, you know, $100 to support the truckers one day and then going to your ATM the next day and you can't withdraw money from your checking account because the government has frozen your account. A Department of Homeland Security bulletin as we planned a, a similar convoy in the United States that went from California to Washington, D.C., characterized those of us who were challenging the government's preferred pandemic policies, characterized us as literally as domestic terrorists. That, that was the language used by the Department of Homeland Security. All of these bad policies were made possible by the declared state of emergency in which the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers that he wouldn't otherwise have. So Biden announced before the midterm elections that the pandemic was over on 60 Minutes, his advice, which would have been a good thing politically for him to say coming into the midterm elections, right? We finally got a handle on this. It's, it's all good. We can go back to normal. But his advisors freaked out and said, no, 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 you can't say that. Well, why is that? If the pandemic is over, then you have to end the uh, state of emergency. And you're going to have to relinquish those additional powers, which include access to funding that the president wouldn't otherwise have. Congress normally holds the purse strings, right? But under the declared state of emergency, uh, the president has access to uh, dispose of, of more available funding than he otherwise would have. So this new paradigm of governments is, I think, now encouraging us to jump from one declared emergency to the next. There's going to soon be another declared public health emergency. You saw efforts already to reframe other issues from climate to racism as public health issues or as a public health crisis, right? It's been a useful fulcrum uh, to, to gain additional powers and to, to accomplish things in society that otherwise would not be uh, acceptable or, or permitted. I don't have time right now, but maybe in the Q&A, we can talk a little bit about uh, the use of censorship to control the flow of information as well. So I'm a, a plaintiff in a lawsuit that's going very well so far, actually, called Missouri versus Biden. You may have read about that in the newspaper. We recently got an injunction. Uh, the government appealed the injunction against uh, the censorship industrial complex, the government's efforts to censor people on social media. History doesn't repeat itself, and I'll close with this. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, as Mark Twain said. So it's, it's helpful to look at prior regimes where the pretext of public safety during a time of emergency paved the way even for full-blown totalitarianism. 
The Nazis governed for virtually the entirety of their existence under Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution. They never overturned the Weimar Republic's constitution. But Article 48 allowed for, guess what? The suspension of German laws during a time of emergency. And that emergency lasted 12 years, virtually their entire time in power. Eric Vogelin, who studied the 20th century totalitarianism, said that the common feature is not mass surveillance, which we have now, by the way. It's not concentration camps. It's not men in jackboots, secret police. He said the common feature of all totalitarian systems is the prohibition of questions. Totalitarian regimes monopolize what counts as knowledge, monopolize what counts as rationality. And if you challenge that, if you ask inconvenient questions, they don't argue with you, they don't debate with you, they don't sit down and look at the data and try to come to a conclusion with you. They simply ignore you, and if that doesn't work, they steamroll you. Uh, I would propose that that's exactly what's happening in our country today. And the rest of the totalitarian apparatus is not far behind once you start going down that pathway. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Soviet dissident in the Gulag Archipelago, said the following. If only we had stood together against the common threat, we could have easily defeated it. So why didn't we? We didn't love freedom enough. We hurried to submit. We submitted with pleasure. And then his punchline of, a damning indictment of his own society. We purely and simply deserved everything that happened afterward. So I know the people in this room love freedom enough. I hope we can convince our fellow citizens to love freedom enough before it's too late. Thank you. Thank you very much.